Well, uh, wonderful to be with you. My name is Derek, if I haven't met you, and we're thankful that you're here. We are beginning a new sermon series today uh, on the book of Daniel. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can open it up to Daniel. Daniel's in the Old Testament. It's uh, after Ezekiel. There's also this really great thing at the beginning of most of our Bibles called the Table of Contents. Please don't feel ashamed uh, to use that, especially in the latter half of the Old Testament. Uh, It's a big help. Uh, So if you'll open up to Daniel chapter 1, that's where we're going to be today. We had a great opportunity yesterday uh, with some folks gathered to do some serving at, uh, at a children's home, St. Jude's Ranch for Children, and uh, had a great time spreading some mulch and building some flower beds and weeding some places and just making it beautiful for these kids who have been taken out of their homes. It really brings up one of the main themes that we're going to look at today and throughout the fall, actually, is this idea of living in a place that's not your home. Maybe you saw it for a split second as it kind of flipped through here, but that's kind of our tagline with Daniel, living here, longing for home. So with that in mind, uh, open up Daniel 1 with me and let's read. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, <coughs> endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to, underst- uh, competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, And of the wine that he drank, they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for Daniel and his witness. We're thankful most of all, Lord, for the witness of your power and might, your sovereign care, your love, your faithfulness, your steadfastness. Teach us those things today, Lord. Open our eyes and our ears and soften our hearts that we might know you and worship you. And love you more today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, oftentimes you can, uh, you can tell a person by their, by their accent, right? We have accents that we were brought up with that sometimes feel out of place in the places that we live now. I was having these new glasses made for the other day, and the guy that was fixing my glasses, as soon as he spoke one sentence, I immediately knew he was from New Orleans. Because you could just tell he's got that accent. When I'm on the phone uh, with my dad, Joy tells me that I actually slip into a different accent, that I develop this kind of like backwoods country drawl when I'm talking to my dad. 
She says she can know exactly who I'm talking to just by the way that I talk. In fact, uh, my kids will say that they know the friends that I'm talking to just by the tone of my voice. Isn't that interesting that we kind of develop, you know, the language of home, the, the language that makes us feel at home with others. There's a writer named Amy Tan. She wrote the great book, The Joy Luck Club, and she writes this great essay about that phenomenon, what it means to kind of have this life that she lives uh, where she speaks in this kind of trained English that she was schooled in, but then to go home and to speak to her mother and her family or extended family in a much more broken English and that's kind of mixed with Chinese but feels so much like home. Just listen as she talks about this. It's a long passage, but I think well worth listening to. I was giving a talk to a large group of people, the same talk I had already given to a half a dozen of other groups. The nature of the talk was about my writing, my life, and my book, The Joy Luck Club. The talk was going along well enough until I remembered one major difference that made the whole talk sound wrong. My mother was in the room, and it was perhaps the first time she had heard me give a lengthy speech using the kinds of English that I never used with her. I was saying things like, the intersection of memory upon imagination, and there's an aspect of my fiction that relates to thus and thus. A speech that was filled with carefully wrought grammatical phrases, burdened, it suddenly seemed to me, with nominalized forms, past perfect tenses, conditional phrases, and all the forms of standard English that I had learned in school and throughout books, the forms of English I did not use at home with my mother. Just last week, I was walking down the street with my mother, and again, I found myself conscious of the English that I was using the English that I do use with her. We were talking about the price of new and used furniture, and I heard myself saying this, not waste money that way. That kind of language has become our language of intimacy, a different sort of English that relates to family talk, the language I grew up with. So you'll have some idea of what this family talk uh, that I heard sounds like. Uh, I'll quote what my mother said during a recent conversation, which I videotaped and then transcribed. During this conversation, my mother was talking about a political gangster in Shanghai who had the same last name as her family, Du, and how the gangster in his early years wanted to be adopted by her family, which was rich in comparison. Later, the gangster became more powerful, far richer than my mother's family, and one day showed up at my mother's wedding to pay his respects. Here's what she said, in part. Du Yusong having business like fruit stand, like off the street kind. He is do like Duzong, but not Sung Ming Island people. The local people call Putong, the river east side. He belonged to that side local people. That man want to ask Duzong father to take him in like become own family. Duzong father wasn't looked down on him, but didn't take seriously until that man big like become a mafia. Now important person, very hard to inviting him. Chinese way, came only to show respect. Don't stay for dinner. Respect for making big celebration, he shows up. Mean gives lots of respect, Chinese custom. Chinese social life that way. If too important, won't have to stay too long. He come to my wedding. I didn't see. I heard it. I gone to boy's side. They have YMCA dinner. Chinese age. I was 19. You should know that my mother's expressive commands of English belies how much she actually understands. She reads the Forbes report. She listens to Wall Street Week. She converses daily with her stockbroker. She reads all of Shirley MacLaine's books with ease, all of things that I can't begin to understand. That's also funny. Yet some of my friends tell me they understand 50% of what my mother says. 
Some say they understand none of it, as if she were speaking pure Chinese. But to me, my mother's English is perfectly clear, perfectly natural. It's my mother tongue. That was the language that helped shape the way I saw things, expressed things, made sense of the world. That theme, feeling like you're not completely at home, feeling like the language of your culture and of your place is not the language that actually helps you make sense of the world, that theme is what runs as a constant throughout the book of Daniel. As we spend this fall kind of soaking in Daniel, we're going to repeatedly come back to that idea that we are living here and longing for home. Because the truth is that what was true of Daniel in his foreign place is also true of us. Let me see if I can give a little background first. So Daniel opens up for us with really the the political reality of what's going on. It's around the 600 or so B.C., and Israel, God's people, had been divided into two kingdoms for quite some time. Actually, right after the reign of Solomon, that kingdom gets divided, northern and southern. And the northern kingdom, because of its disobedience, had actually been conquered by Assyria years earlier. The southern kingdom, Judah, had gone on a little bit longer because the kings were a little bit better and followed the Lord just a little bit more. But it has finally come to the time where they are also being conquered by their enemies. The Bible is very clear that this is because of their disobedience. It's because they have not followed the Lord that he has given them into the hand of their enemies. That enemy is Babylon. Babylon, who has already conquered Assyria and has kind of pushed Egypt back and has now actually come as well for Israel. And the strategy that Babylon would use when they would conquer other peoples is an interesting one. First of all, it kind of came in waves. There were three waves of these deportations that happened in Judah. This is the first wave that we're reading about in the book of Daniel. But even as they came in waves, they came about it in some interesting ways. They wanted to communicate something really specific to the people that they conquered. They wanted to communicate, A, this is your new home. B, your God is dead. And C, this is where you will actually shape and form your new identity. See, if you look actually at what happens here in these verses, you see in, uh, in chapter, in verse 3, we read this. The king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning and competent to stand in the king's palace. What's happening is that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, instead of actually going in to Judah and killing all of the best and brightest, he's actually taking the best and the brightest, especially the kids. Because he probably knows, as Whitney Houston does, that they are our future, right? Um, So he's taking the kids, and he's bringing them back to Babylon. And they're not just kind of any normal kids. These are the people that you are going to build a group around. If you want to build a group, if you want to kind of build a brand, these are your folks. You're going to build around these folks because they're smart, they're capable, they're really beautiful, and they're young. These are the people that you want. So what Nebuchadnezzar has done is he says, well, let's, instead of destroying our enemies, let's turn them into allies. Let's bring the young of them into our place, and we'll tell them something very important. This 
is your new home. That place you came from, you'll never go back to. That place you came from, you might as well just wipe away from your memory. That family that you came from, those customs that you've had, go ahead and forget all about that because this is your new place. That's the first kind of piece of his strategy. But the second piece is pretty interesting too. Maybe you heard that in verse 2, that one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar did is not just carry away the kids, but also some of the objects from the temple. The southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, also is where Jerusalem was, which is where God's temple was, the place where God was to be worshipped, the place where God's special presence even resided. And so what Nebuchadnezzar does is he comes into the temple, and he, in this very bold kind of power move, takes some of the items from the temple and takes them back to his place and puts them in the temple of his God. Now, the message is really, really clear. The message is, I didn't just conquer your people. I conquered your God. Your God, who is supposed to protect you, who we heard all of these great stories about, about how he delivered you out of Egypt, about how he brought you across, you know, uh, the desert and the wilderness. That God, I just defeated. So not only are you not at home, but your God is now dead. I was listening to a song the other day uh, from, the, from the latest Avett Brothers record, a song called uh, I Should Have Stayed Home With My Family. It's a song that really records a lot of probably the experiences that, that many of us have had at different times over the last couple of years. He talks about waking up early in the morning, really just wanting to kind of have a fresh cup of coffee and get his day started, but making the mistake of checking his phone and seeing that there had been another shooting. And the rest of the song really goes about him dealing kind of with that reality throughout the rest of the day. Noticing as he continues to read in this article that one of the children who was shot looks a lot like his kid. Really wrestling with the place that he lives. And then he gives this line that's just chilling. He said, I, I don't know when it was that God decided to leave or why he didn't say goodbye. It's maybe a feeling some of us have felt when you're honest with yourself. Is, is God just kind of checked out, either in my own particular life or just in the world, when it looks like things are kind of unraveling so much, to ask that question, has God left? Is it over? That's the question that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to embed in the hearts of Daniel and his friends. This is your new home. Your God is dead. And then the third piece of his strategy, not only is this your new home and your God is dead, but this is actually where your identity is going to be shaped. See, this third and probably most important piece of his strategy is to take these youths and to bring them in to Babylon and to create new Babylonians. You're no longer going to be Jews. You're going to be Babylonians. So he wants to teach them the literature and the culture, the language, he wants to enculturate them and sit them around his table and give them the best food. Look at all these beautiful new luxuries that we've brought you into. Look at this incredible culture and this heritage now that we have that can be your culture and your heritage. And if he wasn't plain enough, we read it in the last verse there, that he just decided to go ahead and change their names. It's kind of key to changing somebody's identity, isn't it? So he takes all of their Hebrew names and he gives them all Babylonian names. Again, 
You're in a new place. This is your home now. That God that you used to worship, he's gone. He's dead or he's left the building. And you now have a new identity that will be shaped here in this place. Now, why do I tell you all of this? Why is this important to us? Well, it's important to us because we actually live in the same place that Daniel lived. Now, that may sound very odd, but you and I still live in Babylon. Not physically, not temporally, but the Bible says actually spiritually speaking, we live in exile. You know, if you, if you kind of read through the rest of the Old Testament, what you'll find is that over that 600 years spanning between this time of Daniel and, the, and, and Jesus and his incarnation, you have this lingering question from God's people, which is, are we ever going to return to our real home? Are we ever going to have that real rest that God has promised? Is there ever going to be a king who's going to rescue us out of exile, who's going to defeat our enemies and actually restore the kingdom of God to us? That is the resounding question. And of course, the resounding answer as you open up the New Testament is yes, and his name is Jesus. He has actually come to take on our flesh and to be our king and to remove us from exile. And so the real truth is that Jesus has done that. He has established his kingdom on earth. And he has removed us from the real exile that we struggle with, sin and death. But friends, there is an overlapping time where that truth spiritually has not fully reached its final realization physically and temporally. We live in between the times, we say, where Jesus has initiated that kingdom truly, but we don't see the fullness of it yet physically. And so we live still physically, temporally, in this exiled kind of place. We live in Babylon. In fact, when you open up the book of Revelation, that's the word that John hears uh, spoken of, Babylon, talking about actually the world that we live in, the physical reality that we live in. So let me just kind of spell it out a little bit more clearly. Uh, modern day Iran is Babylon but so is Spain. Okay, Malaysia is Babylon, but so is Ireland. Russia is Babylon, but so is America. We don't live in Jerusalem, friends. We live 2020 America in Babylon. And let me be a little more clear, 1950 America was also Babylon and 1850, and 1750. Because we don't live in Jerusalem, and by the way, modern-day Jerusalem is not Jerusalem either. We belong to the kingdom of God that has been established, and he is reigning, and Jesus truly is king. But where we live right now is not our real home. And that's really important, I think, for us to consider because the message that Daniel got from Nebuchadnezzar is the same message that we actually get as well from our culture. This is your true home. Your God is dead. This is the place where your identity will be shaped. This is where you will find your true and lasting and real home. 
That's the message that we so often get, isn't it? You know, we get squeezed oftentimes into conforming into the system of values that our place, where we live, where we reside, that wants to give us. A system of values that really says that uh, your, your contentment should be measured in square footage or decimal points. And your joy should be measured in the number of pleasurable experiences that you have. And your happiness should be measured on the amount of individual freedom that you have. And we have this system of values from the world around us always wanting to conform us to them. Always wanting to proclaim that this is our home. That the God who has created all things is kind of just passe now. And we can put him aside and we can start instead embracing the much better gods of consumerism and of individualism and of hedonism and of whatever other ism you'd like to throw in there. And so we're expected to laugh at all of the jokes that everybody laughs at. And we're expected to find our acceptance in others in all of the normal ways that everybody else does because we're, ex- we're expected that we live here and find our home here. But here's the wonderful truth that we learn from the book of Daniel. The wonderful truth that we're going to dwell on, really, for the rest of this fall semester is that we don't live here. We actually belong. If you belong to Jesus, you belong to his kingdom, and that is where you find your real citizenship. We get to hear the amazing news that this isn't our home, that our God is very much alive and very much in control of all things, And that our identity is actually true and shaped by Christ and not the things around us. I want you to just kind of walk with me through some of these things as well. Or listen to these, first of all, listen to these great passages of Scripture from the New Testament. Paul says in Ephesians 2, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. No longer strangers and aliens, no longer refugees. We've actually been given a home and a citizenship in heaven. He says it again in Philippians 3, 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it awaits a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the first thing and the foundational thing that we've got to preach to our own hearts, is that we live here, but we have a real home somewhere else. We have a citizenship that is real and true and lasting, and that citizenship is in the kingdom of God. I read a story the other day. This was uh, from Tony Blair, the former prime minister. It was in his memoirs. I just found the story. I don't actually read Tony Blair's memoirs, you know, uh, at night. Uh, But it was a great little story about a friend he had whose parents were, were European Jews and had immigrated to the United States. And they grew up, you know, fairly poor, but had a great life and lots of happiness in the United States. In fact, uh, as this child, Tony Blair's friend, actually grew and became wealthy, he would always ask his mom, who outlived his dad, you know, can I take you on on this cruise? Can I take you on this European vacation? Can we go somewhere? And she would always say, no, I'm happy right here. When she died, they were, they were going through her things and kind of sorting them out, as you do when a parent dies, and found actually a, a, a safety deposit box. 
and found the key to the safety deposit box, and they went and they opened it, and they found some valuables there, some, some jewelry and some, uh, some great things, you know, from, from grandparents and great-grandparents and really beautiful uh, and, and somewhat valuable things. But inside the safe deposit box, there was another box, locked without a key. It, and, and they started to get really excited. You know, what, what's in this box, right? What, what would be inside a safe deposit box that's even more special? And they couldn't find the key, so they actually had to drill it out. They had to drill it out to open it up. And they started to search through it to find, like, there must be some, you know, 20-carat diamond passed on from ancestors here that's going to make us all, you know, this incredible fortune. And what they found was actually a little envelope wrapped up nice and tight. And they unwrapped it and pulled out of the envelope her citizenship papers. The thing that she treasured the most, the thing that she had locked inside a box, locked inside another box, was her citizenship papers. Friends, that has got to be the starting place for us. The thing that we treasure the most has to be our citizenship. Has to be our citizenship, not here, but our citizenship in the kingdom of God. That we belong to Jesus and we have been made his subjects, and the Bible says amazingly, even have been made his children. That is the true jewel that we get to hang on to. Secondly, we get to, of course, proclaim that our God is not dead. He's very much alive. In fact, we see that in Daniel from the first couple of verses. Listen again. Maybe you didn't catch it the first time. Verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. See, Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he's making this grand gesture to remove all these vessels of the house of God, to put them in his God's house, and I have killed your God. But God is in control the whole time. He's the one who's overseeing all of it. He is the one who's actually given Israel into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. God is in complete and total control this whole time. And isn't it so cool that in the midst of that control, he actually allows for some of those things from the temple to be brought to Babylon as if God is saying, guess what? I'm going with you. <laughs> yes, it was your disobedience that's led you here. Yes, you're being punished for your sin. But even in the midst of that, I'm going to go and be with you. I'm going to go and be with you, and this is going to be a sign even that I'm with you and that I'm caring for you and that I have real and true plans for you. God is in total, utter control of all of this. He is overseeing all in your life. So how do we develop the language of home even when we live in a foreign place? Well, th there's a first clue right there, is that we cling to tightly not only our citizenship, which is in heaven, but the wonderful sovereignty of our God. And here's the third part, is that our identity if you are a Christian, is not in play. Your identity, if you are a Christian, is not up for grabs. Your identity, if you're a Christian, is not to be shaped by the world that you live in, but it is secure, shaped only by the work of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? A wonderful thought to think of, that your identity, if you belong to Jesus, is not based on your performance. It's not based on your athletic performance or your scholastic performance or your work performance, your vocational performance. It's not based on uh, the, the kind of a, amount of social standing that you have. It's not based on your looks. 
or your weight or your charisma or your charm. It's not based on the size of your house or the kind of watch you wear. It's not based on the amount of power that you've accumulated for yourself. It's not based on the number of friends that you have or the number of likes that you get on social media. Your identity is formed only by the work of Christ on your behalf. And if you belong to Jesus, what he has said of you is that your identity is saint, holy one, set apart. Your identity is righteous, made righteous by the blood of Christ. Your identity is beloved. Your identity is child of the king. Your identity is subject of God's kingdom. What wonderful news. How do we sing the songs of our home when we don't live at home? How do we proclaim the beauty of our God when we live in a foreign place? How do we faithfully live in a place that is not our true home? That's where we do it. We know our, we know our citizenship is in heaven. We know our God is in control. And we know and understand and proclaim the identity that he's given us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what else can we say except thy kingdom come? May your will be done in this place, Lord, in exile. May it be done in our hearts. May it be done in our communities. May it be done in this church, in this city. And Lord, even though we can proclaim that that we live in a great place, that we have been blessed to live in, in many ways, a really wonderful place in time, we can still recognize that it's not our home. So, Lord, we ask that your will would be done, that your kingdom would come, and that it would come quickly, that we might be at home with you. Until then, make us faithful. We pray in Jesus' name.